uh, Seinfeld is absolutely correct here in this scene. I don't know if you guys remember if you were Seinfeld fans like my wife and I were, but I remember this episode. I remember this scene. And, and what, what is good about a reservation is the car is there for you, right? If you have a reservation and you get there and there's no car, what good was the reservation? It makes absolutely no sense. Why would I make a reservation if when I get there, the car's not, not there, no, no longer there? And, and, and I, I don't think that you can really say, as a company, you know what reservations are if this is your philosophy, right? If there's no car that was reserved waiting for me to drive away in, how can you call that a reservation, right? It's nonsensical. And today, right, how do I, how do I transition from this into the sermon today? But today in the book of Samuel, we are going to learn that it's the same thing with obedience, Okay. So flush the reservation part. Think about obedience, right? Through the example of Saul, we're going to learn that there really is no such thing as partial obedience. In fact, the only thing about partial obedience uh, that's any good, if you're talking to someone about somebody obeying a little bit or whatever, really the only thing it's good for is highlighting a disobedient heart, So if we're not fully obeying God, right, and we try to use a partial obedience as as what we're doing or somehow trying or attempting, right, all it does is is it highlights who we really are. We're selfish people. We're looking for ourselves and how we can benefit ourselves. And we're going to learn today that partial obedience only reveals a disobedient heart. So let's dive right into uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting in verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you over uh, king, over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Samuel starts with a little bit of a history lesson. If you haven't been here for the first 15 chapters or 14, um, this kind of catches you up. Right? Not all the details, but some of it. It says, hey, the Lord sent me, Samuel, to anoint you, Saul, king over his people, Israel. Israel wanted a king. God said, I am your king. Israel said, we still want a king. God said, well, I can give you a king, but it's not going to turn out very well. And what did the children of Israel say? We want a king like everybody else, right? And so God's like, okay, these are the consequences. This is what's going to happen, but let's do this king thing. And he sends Samuel to anoint Saul as king. God chose Saul to be the first king of his people. So even this early kingship of Saul right? He's already begun to forget his place. He's, he's barely begun. Few battles under his belt. And he's already forgotten what happened to get him to this place. He seems to already have forgotten who God is. Uh, he seems to have forgotten who's the people of Israel are, which is God's, right? His people, Israel, that's God's. And he seems to have forgotten that Samuel is God's mouthpiece, right? He was the, the, the priest, the prophet. He was speaking for God. He's the one who moved forward, brought Saul before the people, and, and, and put him in the place of king for God. 
With that reminder, Samuel gives the key theme to the chapter uh, to Saul here. He says, listen to the words of the Lord. If you're taking note this morning, if this, is, this is really, really important. Listen to the words of the Lord. Literally translated, it reads, listen to the voice of the words of the Lord. We can tell that this is a theme uh, when, you, when we see this Hebrew word voice used seven times in our text today. Okay, so this is important here. In our lessons from leaders in the series that we're going through in First and Second Samuel, this might be the most important lesson that we have covered so far. Today's a biggie. It's a good one to be here. I'm glad you didn't skip to go to the beach or get on the boat. Those things are fun and important, but I'm glad you're here today because this is such an important lesson. A godly leader listens to the words of the Lord and, and not simply listening to inform our minds, but listening to inform or dare I say transform our footsteps, right? That's why we're listening to the word of God. That's why we're reading God's word. That's why we're studying. That's why we get together and talk about the Bible, God's word, so that not only do we hear, but that our lives are transformed, right? I I love that. We want to inform our minds. We want to listen. We want to hear the words of God, and then we want transformation to happen in our lives, right? It's all about the heart, We want to have obedient hearts, right, that lead obedient lives. That's the goal here, guys. That's what we're here to do, to learn more about God, what he has called us to do, to live that life, to become more like Jesus, so that our lives reflect the heart of God. Obedience, right? So our big idea today, the partial obedience only reveals a disobedient heart. We're going to see throughout this chapter when we look at Saul. So what God is about to require of Saul will take specific and difficult action. And let's see if he's up to this or not. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them all the way when they came up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and, and, and devote to destruction. Devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and women, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. All of a sudden here in verse 2 and 3, it gets really heavy. These are hard words to read. This is like some of us are going to cringe and go, whoa, whoa, wait a second. That's not what I'm used to hearing when I, when I hear about God, right? When I think about God, those aren't the things that I would hear him say to the king of his people, right? And, and so there are some people who have used these verses to, to call the God of the Bible hateful or racist or genocidal or, or worse, right? And, and, and so as I looked at this this week, I was like, that's not what I believe. And, and we need to pause for a moment here and say, okay, how and why would God call Saul and Israel to this extreme, right? Well, the Bible clearly records that God gave the Amalekites over 400 years to repent from their sins, okay? So as, as parents, you know how we give our kids a little bit of time, some time to come around, right? Come around to obedience, 
right? That, well, they've been doing this. They've been hounding the children of Israel for over 400 years. This nation preyed upon Israel constantly. Uh, the example uh, given of them attacking Israel when they were coming up from Egypt. Remember when they left Egypt to head to the promised land? This country, the Amalekites, I should say, their strategy was to pick off the stragglers. To, to lessen the numbers, to weaken Israel by killing the people that were struggling to get to where they needed to go. You know, one day's hike, maybe a little bit longer, you're feeling a little bit tired, you're at the back of the group, that's what they were picking off, right? And so we knew, they went for the old people, they went for the, the women, they went for the children. This nation had literally been a cancer to Israel. And, and and you must remove all of cancer. If you leave some behind, it, it'll grow back, right? And so that's what God's saying here is we need total, uh, we need these people to be wiped out. The, the last thing I noticed when I was looking at this is God, we have to remember that God is 100% just and 100% loving. And sometimes our brains can't balance that very easily. It's harder for us to think about and to understand, right? For a parent, again, I know we're going to the parents as the examples here, but it's kind of e- a little bit easier for us to understand if we think about it this way. When we discipline our children, right, it doesn't mean that we don't love them, right? It- it's the exact opposite. And when I discipline my four children who are now adults, right, all four of them, when I discipline them, we would verbally talk about that there is a consequence for your action. And if I let you continue on in the action, this is the end result. And that is not good. It's not honoring to God. It's not honoring to your family. It's bad for yourself. In other words, you're in trouble and you need consequence or discipline Because if I let you go on in your sin or in your disobedience, right, the end result is going to be worse. And so here we, we, we see that idea that, that God is a God of justice and love. And you can't let someone continue on in sin like this without there being consequence. But even a law-abiding citizen, uh, you know, if you don't buy into that, if you're, if you're like, that's still tough for me to understand, think about this concept, okay? An example, if somebody breaks into your house, steals your belongings, right? And then he gets caught and he goes before a judge, right? Would you call that judge unjust for sentencing him to prison time? He broke the law, he was caught, he was found guilty, and then he got his just punishment, right? Prison time. God's timing is always perfect. Again, why didn't, why wasn't Israel able to stop them from attacking over and over and over for a 400 year period? I don't know. That's not written in God's word. But what we see is this, this nation that had been uh, the bane of the existence of Israel for a long time, starting from when they left Egypt. And God is stepping in. So he's decided that it is time. The Amalekites need to be judged. And, and he's decided to use the Israelites under King Saul, right, to, to be the judgment upon them. This is what we see Samuel bringing to Saul. So if you're, you're still struggling with this and, and the intensity in this, what, what they're being called to do, believe me, I understand. I do. 
And and, and seriously, we we have some great resources this week that we used uh, that we could definitely forward you or point you towards with with uh, with some more commentary on that and, and maybe some different insights. But the bottom line, Saul has a very clear mission from God, right? He's been given uh, an order from God through Samuel. And now what will Saul do with this order? Verse four. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telam, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Canaanites, go depart from amongst the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up from Egypt, out of Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul summons this massive army, right? He gets ready. He's going to obey God. He's going to fulfill the task, right? He even seems to display some mercy, Right? And he's probably seen God be merciful, not only to the Israelites, but to other people that maybe didn't deserve it, you know, over the years. And so he's allowing this other group that had kind of intermingled to leave. Hey, you're not part of the Amalekites. Get lost. Right? And they leave. Right? But sadly, things go downhill from these verses really quick. And Saul defeated the Amalekites. I'm talking about Saul's obedience. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, and he took Agag, the king of the uh, Amalekites, alive and, and devoted destruction to all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. That was despised, all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Is there even such a thing really as partial obedience? As I read through these first seven, eight, nine verses over and over this week, I was like, he didn't obey. God told him to do something. And really he said, how can I turn this for my benefit? I don't even know that there was any obedience in it other than, other than he attacked the people that God told him to attack. I, like, I really struggled with this. Partial obedience only shines a spotlight on the disobedient heart. I hope when I was reading this through, and we're going to talk about it more in a second, everything that he decided to do against God showed that he valued his own opinion above what God had called him to do. Right? So how do we call it partial obedience? This guy didn't do a lot of what God called him to do. One pastor describes Saul's motivations as likely being prideful and looking for profit, right? And I was like, yes. So as I'm reading this week, studying, I'm like, I really like this stuff. The pride, right? Saul's son, we've talked about Jonathan uh, these last couple weeks. He's proven himself to be a great leader, faithful and effective, Right? And, and the people love Jonathan. Now, this probably hurt Saul's pride. So, what a better way for Paul to show his victory than to keep the king of the enemy as a trophy of his military prowess? Right? I'm not going to kill everybody like God told me to. I'm going to keep the king alive because then I got him. I can show what I have done. 
Now, what this shows here especially is tough because he's his father. But it's really sad that leaders have a tough time rejoicing in the victories of others, right? And instead, they want to manipulate situations to then divert the attention back to themselves. And that's what we're seeing Saul do here today. Jonathan had led well. Over these last couple of chapters. And it seems like Saul is like trying to get the focus back on him. So pride, I think, was part of it. The other part that we saw and read about this week was profit. By keeping what is the best in all that was good. That's the words that are used there by the author of 1 Samuel. Saul could make a good profit off of what should have been a solemn occasion. Right? And a serious act of justice on behalf of the Lord. When people look back on this battle, they should have told, they should have heard a story of complete and utter destruction. Right? That's what should have happened. And instead, they look back and the king was spared and everything that was good was kept. Right? God didn't call him to do that. God called him to destroy everything. Saul's actions highlight his heart's problems, right? He, his sinful deeds betray a sinful heart. In 1 John 2, John sums up the sins of man by calling them the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. What John says is directly what was going on with Saul and is still the problem with our sinful hearts today if we don't obey. If we try to partially obey, we're going to be tempted to move back to what's good for us and what makes me look good to others around us. And you know what? A lot of times that flies directly in the face of what God has called us to do. Partial obedience only reveals a disobedient heart. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he has set up a monument for himself. And turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. The key phrase... In our theme, the word of the Lord, right, that we were talking about earlier, is here again. We're, we're meant to see a great difference between how Samuel responds to God's voice and how Saul responded to the voice of God, right? Godly leaders will listen to the voice of the Lord, when he finds out what Saul has done. Saul was, or Samuel was angry. Right? Samuel was angry. No, the question of who Samuel was angry at has been discussed. But I think he was pretty, pretty obvious here in this, in all the discussion that we saw, that he was angry at Saul for disobeying the voice of the Lord again. Right? Saul had heard from Samuel what he was supposed to do and decided again not to do it. And so we see this anger, this righteous anger, right? And this righteous anger at sin that is appropriate. We should hate sin because God hates sin. However, I think Christians often get themselves in trouble 
with how they handle their righteous anger. Samuel provided us a wonderful example. Uh, I'm in a little book group that we're reading a book and it was talking about how anger, uh, being angry is, is not good. Anger is not good. And again, I agree and we can't go into the, all the details about that, but I love where, uh, and, and, so, and so what I'm getting at is as we move through this book, we're going to see it's the way we respond to anger. And so sure enough, the same week as we start the book, we see here how Samuel responds to his anger. Right? And it says that he cried out to the Lord all night long. Right? That is incredible. How often when we're angry, especially if it's righteous anger, if we feel it's justified, are we ready to like get in somebody's face? Right? We're ready to, to tell them what we think. We're ready to vet out some sort of punishment for what they've done wrong. Right? And all those things may be justified at some point, but what does Samuel do? Samuel goes before the Lord. He spends time in prayer. He doesn't sleep for a whole night. He talks to God. And and that's an amazing leader. I would love it if the content of his prayer was here because we could use that as a tool. Now it's not, so we don't know exactly what was said, but we know that he went to the Lord in prayer about this. If you find yourself observing sin in a brother or a sister, somebody else who's a believer, and you know that God is calling you to confront them, this is exactly what you should do, right? Samuel has given us a great example here. We need to cry out to the Lord, right? If we see somebody who's struggling in sin, walking down a path they shouldn't be, we need to be before the Lord in prayer. We need to then go, James 1, right? Ask God for wisdom, We all need wisdom, especially if we're confronting a brother or sister about sin, right? We need to pray that God will guide us and direct us in that. We need to ask him to reveal any sin in our own lives before we go and talk to that brother, right? Okay, God, I'm seeing this. I really, I really want your wisdom. I want to be able to talk to this person. But first of all, where am I struggling? Where am I falling short? Where am I sinning? Right now, God, if, I, if I'm doing this and haven't realized it, or maybe I've realized it, but it hasn't been bothering me, I need to get myself in order before I go and talk to him or her, right? So we need to ask God, will reveal that sin, you know, to us in our own hearts that needs to be addressed. Matthew 7 talks about that, right? So looking at yourself first. Then after all those things, going before the Lord in prayer, asking for wisdom, or looking for, for any sin that might need to be revealed in your own life, in your own heart, then we need to ask God to prepare the heart of that brother or sister that we're going to go talk to. Instead of being so eager to go and confront him, ask Holy Spirit, do some work before I get there. Help me out, right? So when I go, that brother or sister is maybe already broken over the sin that's going on in their life. Ask him to prepare that heart before you go to them. Consider Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Again, righteous anger Yeah, there are some things we should get upset about. If somebody is claiming Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and living a life of sin, that should anger us. But by the time we talk to them, if we go through steps like this, we need to be in a place of gentleness, right? At least to start. 
We need to give Holy Spirit a chance to work in their lives, in their heart, to bring them to that place of repentance. We need to make sure that we ourselves are in the right place before God. We need to make sure we're using godly wisdom, not our own wisdom. And we need to spend a ton of time in prayer. So brother and sister, I know I camped on this for a while, but this is what Samuel did before he goes to Saul. We're going to see what happens with Saul, but he says, I'm going to go before the Lord. I'm going to look at myself. I'm going to use wisdom and then I'm going to move forward in it. He inquires uh, uh, about Saul's whereabouts. Samuel gets even worse news, right? Look what happens at the end of these verses. Apparently Saul, after this great victory, keeping the king alive and all the spoils of war, he sets up a monument for God. No, no, no. That's not what it says. He set up a monument for himself, right? The slippery slope continues. Come on, man, right? I mean, what is going on here? Verse 13, and Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, bless be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is bleeding? What is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? What a great response, huh? I had to laugh uh, the first couple times I read that. Saul said, well, these have brought them, uh, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. So I I don't know what's worse, partial obedience or pretending like he had performed the commandment of the Lord. He didn't say, well, hey, I changed the orders, right? I made a call myself as a king. He tries to tell Samuel, I did it. I did what God called me to do. And, And Samuel replies with that great response, one of the greatest comebacks in the Bible there. What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ear and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Seriously, right? I mean, you and I, we need maybe adopt that line, right? When I thought you were going to take out the garbage, son, right? And then he's like, well, I, I did or whatever. And it's not all gone. It's not all out. And then, what is this bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the cattle I hear, right? I mean, it, it could be fun. It could be fun. Maybe not though. But Samuel is like, what? Why would you tell me that you obeyed God? Why would you say that you carried out his commandments? I hear What's going on? I'm not stupid here, right? But Saul's response here betrays his heart in more ways than one. Partial obedience really does reveal a heart of disobedience, right? So first, and this is conjecture, but it sounds like Saul had a canned response ready. Like he was ready for Samuel maybe to come to him. Right? It sounds like he was kind of ready. He knew what he did was wrong, and he'd been working to come up with a good excuse for Samuel. As a parent, and, and, uh, and as, has helped out a lot with kids and, you know, children's ministry, ministering here at the church, also in coaching, uh, you know, I was coaching little kids all the way up through high school kids or whatever, you know, as somebody who spent a lot of time around kids, I've seen this before. And, and I've, I've developed a pretty good meter of knowing when somebody is, is, is giving me baloney, right? Baloney, right? You're, you're not telling me the truth, right? You're giving me a partial truth. I mean, I know a lot of you parents. I'm asking for the head, hand raise in the head again. We don't want to, you know, but you're raising your hand going, yeah, I know. I got that meter too, right? My kids start talking and, and I don't really, I'm only seeing the half truths, right? Partial truth. 
partial obedience, right? And so, so Saul, it looked like, was ready with an answer. Secondly, his very first word, Saul deflects blame to someone else. We've talked about this in leadership here. We've talked about it other times when we're talking about leaders. Uh, you know, if you're leading, you, you know, you got you to take responsibility for what's going on, right? And here he says, they. Yeah, really? Right, if they. They're going to do this without the king's command, right? These, this, this group of soldiers. He says, yeah, it's the people's fault. It's not my fault. I didn't do anything wrong, Right? To start, this is entirely untrue. It's just flat out a lie. But even if it was true, what does this say about Saul's incompetence as a leader? If you're the king and you've told them to kill all the sheep and kill all the livestock, and they show back up with it, be a leader. Go out and finish the job, right? And instead, he tries to say, well, it was the people that did it. It wasn't really me. Either way, this isn't a good look, right? So he's trying to blame them. And then, and then finally we see Saul's words really betray his own heart. I've already uh, asserted that partial obedience reveals a heart of disobedience. But know what he calls God, right? He says, the Lord, your God. He doesn't say our God. Saul says the Lord, your God, to Samuel. Right, And I think that speaks volumes, right? We can point out the ridiculousness of this entire argument, right? I mean, Kevin and I were talking about this this week as we were prepping the sermon. It's this idea that I disobeyed God so that I could sacrifice to God. Or I I failed God to please God. I rebelled against God so that I could come back to him and worship him. It just doesn't make any sense. And it shouldn't make sense in your mind for Saul. Partial obedience shows disobedience, a heart of disobedience. Now, unfortunately, right, when we see these things, it's really easy to highlight and circle and point to and all of us to shake our heads at Saul, right? It is. It's easy to do that. And that's why we're here. But our goal is to learn these lessons from leaders. So now let's get personal. Again, if I cheat on my taxes, I'm going to be able to give more to the church. Right? I mean, could somebody justify cheating the government, right? The honoring, the respecting of the government so that they give more to the church. I, I, if I drink myself silly, maybe I can handle my anxiety better because I'll be calmer and I won't sin. Right? So now you're justifying that. I continue in my gossip-driven friendships so that I can pray for the people that we're talking about. I won't know if I'm not in those groups, Right? So I'm going to continue on in there. But then I can pray for him. See how I'm, I'm taking this thing that is not good and I'm trying to justify it. I punched a hole in the drywall so that I wouldn't punch my spouse or my kid. I only looked at pornography so that I wouldn't commit premarital sex or, or have an affair. And the list could go on and on and on. Kevin and I finally had to just stop writing them, right? Okay, Holy Spirit, we hear you. Okay, help us to look at our own lives in light of the ridiculousness of Saul. Look at our own lives and say, Lord, where am I doing this? How am I justifying something that's sinful in your name? Right? And that's really what Saul did here. We got to continue to move on. Uh, Verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I love that. I will tell you what the Lord 
said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction, the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And, and I love this stop in verse 16, right? It's like Samuel's trying to say stop uh, to Saul before he continues on lying, doing more damage right? I don't know if you've had to do this to your children before, but they start talking and you know where they're going is not right. And so you just tell them to stop, right? Just stop before you get yourself in more trouble, right? This, this is what Samuel is saying to Saul. I, I think that Samuel, it, when he was praying all night long, it, it, that prayer probably included a hope that Saul would see his sin and repent, Right? And and so when you're hoping to confront somebody and see repentance and instead they come out and they're, they're just firing all these excuses at you. I'm sure this was frustrating for Samuel. He faithfully recounts the words of the Lord to Saul and again gives him an opportunity to respond like a faithful leader who has failed should respond. Right? There, we're gonna fail. In our walk with God, don't hear me wrong here, guys. You and I, I and you, we are going to fail. We're going to trip and fall. We're going to disobey. But how do we respond to that failure, right? That's what we need to be looking at today. To apply this to you and me, let's say this. As leaders, it's both folly and pride to believe that we're never going to fail in some way. Even if we're just leading in our own families. You know, maybe you're like, again, Mark, I've told you before, I'm not a leader. I just go to work, I get the stuff done, I come home. And I would argue you are. You're leading those people around you. You know, your peer mentorship. They're seeing you work. They're being encouraged by what you do. But all that to say, home, friendships, whatever it might be, you are leading in some way. And if you think you're never going to fail in that, that comes from a prideful heart. And so we all need to keep ourselves in check and, and a proper view on ourselves. We need to get comfortable right now that you're going to fail sometimes. I'm going to fail sometimes. And we got to be okay with that. And then we got to move forward in obedience. We need to repent and change our ways and learn from it and move forward. But there's nothing more revealing than how you and I respond to our own sin. Right? Will I reveal a disobedient heart by denying it? Trying to cover it up? Making up an excuse? Deflecting the blame onto somebody else? Or will I fall on my face and, and humbly repent of my sin before God and anyone else that I've offended? That's two ways you can respond to your sin, to your failures. And each one of us, we've already said, we're gonna fail. So how are you gonna prepare yourself to respond when it happens. My continual prayer for myself and for all of us is that first of all, that we would be the type of leaders who don't have to be caught to face our own sin. When you know you've made a wrong decision, when you know you've stated something wrong, when you know you've sinned, instead of waiting to see if you get caught, 
call yourself out on it, and then do whatever it needs to make it right, right? That's, the, that's my first prayer for all of us, that we'll be that kind of a leader. And secondly, when the Lord or another brother in Christ maybe comes to confront you on something with our own sin, that we would then fall on our face in full repentance. No excuses. No excuses to God. No excuses to the brother. And hopefully that brother or sister has been in prayer, has been seeking wisdom, and, 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 and believe them and trust them that they have gone before the Lord before coming to you. And even if they haven't, if it's true, we need to respond in that way. Full repentance. Verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and ox, and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in Gilgal. So sadly, we see here, Saul only doubles down. He doesn't repent. And we arrive at one of the greatest passages of total obedience in the entire Bible here next. No other portion of Scripture so emphasizes God's demand for total obedience as the one I'm about to to read here. They're poetic, they're beautiful, right? And so when we see this in your Bible, you'll see it's kind of in a, a, almost like a stanza or a poetic way. It says, and Samuel said, has the Lord, or has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fatted rams. For rebellion is as sin or is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. To put it simply, God cares more about your obedience than any religious ritual that you might have placed in your heart. If you get up every day at 5 a.m. to read God's word, and then you go on sinning throughout the day, the reading of God's word at 5 a.m. does not matter. doesn't matter what box you think you've checked off. If you faithfully give 10% to the Lord's work and above and beyond to other ministries and continue on in a life of sin, that sacrifice, that offering means nothing to God. He wants an obedient heart. We could go on and on and on. Faithfully setting up church, tearing it down, coming to church, serving in children's ministry. Whatever it is that you think you're doing for God, he would rather have your obedience. Because he knows if you are obedient, he's going to get everything else. But your obedience is not what he's looking for. He is looking for a heart that understands and wants to follow him. In everything that he asks of us. Why would we perform outward acts of religion. If they're not grounded in an obedient heart filled with faith. Somehow we're chalking up enough good things to get into heaven. Because if we're sitting here today believing that that's the case. We're entirely wrong. We need to get right back to the gospel. We need to start talking about that again. 
Because it's not based on what you do at all. It's based solely on the cross. Jesus Christ's sacrifice, his death, the burial, the resurrection on that third day. That's it. It's a faith placed in that. Knowing that you can never do anything close to enough to get yourself into heaven on your own. Right? And, and, and so God is looking for obedience, not for these faith acts. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ spoke these, these words here. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself in him. Because obedience will produce the actions needed. It's not reversed from that. Your actions cannot fix the relationship between you and God. That needs to be done on its own. And then obedience is the way to show the gratitude for the salvation that he has given you. For the truth of the gospel. Obedience, you might say, is God's love language. Right? God has already entered into this relationship with you. Because of the faith that you can place in him based on the cross, on Jesus and his blood. Now you're in the relationship. Everything was done by Jesus Christ. And now, in return, his love language is obedience. So let's obey him. And my obedience as as a believer saved by grace directly will impact my experience, not only here on earth but also in eternity. Samuel ends with these ominous words of judgment from God. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. It took losing his job, right, being king, what should have been his ministry to the people, to finally have him come to grips with what he has done, right? The, hitting the rock bottom, right? We talk about that proverbial rock bottom, here Samuel has said, Saul, you're done. God's taken the kingship away from you. And he finally admits, okay, I sinned, right? And it's still mixed with blame towards other people, right? He has to be forgiven of his sin and, and to be restored as king. But Samuel reiterates that the Lord has seen enough from Saul, right? You're not going to remain and be the king over Israel. Now, I, I found it interesting to read one scholar's thoughts on verse 26. He said this, Saul confesses his sinfulness and asks for forgiveness, but it's too late for him to get his ministry back. Verse 26 again says that God has rejected Saul from being king. However, it is notable that the text doesn't say that the Lord has rejected you. It says that the Lord has rejected you from being king. The issue here is ministry, not salvation. Rebellion and sin inevitably leads to rejection. One of, uh, 
one of the people that I've been talking to this, this past week, we've been wrestling with this idea of Saul's place. Like, is he a follower of God? And salvation looked different back then. You were God's people because God chose you, uh, and the cross hadn't happened yet, and those sorts of things. And, and, it was, it was one of those things where we talked about it this week, on and off, a couple of different times as I was pouring over this passage and he was looking into it. And, and when I was sitting there last night reading through this one more time, these, this, these verses here pointed me towards maybe how I would have talked a little bit differently with him this week, uh, because I think here that we clearly see that God is taking away the kingship from Saul, not necessarily the relationship. That, that's again my opinion, uh, but you know, in a discussion, maybe a community group this week or whatever, you might be able to talk about that. Um, again, we, what we want to highlight here more than anything else is that sin is costly. Here, sin costs Saul the opportunity to be the king of God's chosen people. God sees and God knows. Okay? And we know here that he's losing the kingship because of the continued sin. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret as the tallest man Saul here, right in Israel, uh, tears uh, Samuel's robe as he leaves the, the hem of the robe. I'm guessing that in this final realization of sin, it might've brought Saul to the place he should have gone originally, which was his knees. So I'm not sure how else he would have grabbed that and, and tore it, but uh, he's down on his hands and knees. He's, he's before Samuel. He's before the Lord. He's, he's acknowledged his sin, hoping for a different consequence. And yet Samuel confirms that the consequence of his sin remains and is unchanged, right? And, and, and he, again, he re- uses this visual this Saul grabbing his, his, his cloak or his robe and tearing it as what God is doing in judgment towards Saul. He is tearing him away from that. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord, your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. In Saul's final statement today, note the the possessive adjectives again. My people. Saul's trying to hold on to his kingship. My people. And then he says, your God. Despite asking for forgiveness, Saul's heart is still in the wrong places. Now, in the very beginning, Samuel reminded Saul that, that the people of Israel were God's people. All the way back at the beginning of this chapter. And here we still have Saul saying, my people. He continues to refer to God as your God to Samuel and not his own. So we, we see these problems continuing 
all the way to the end. And yet Samuel here is a little bit gracious. He decides to accompany Saul. We see that there. But before he goes, before they leave, there's one last piece of unfinished business for our seemingly old and feeble prophet, right? He's getting up there. He's getting up there in age. We know that from the the previous stories. But here we come to the end of this passage. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came in, uh, to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag into pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah. And Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Samuel seems uh, to be a fan of complete obedience. That's what he had been asking Saul to do the entire time. He listens to the word of the Lord and he acts appropriately. So here we got the old man, the old prophet, the one who has done so well and we've learned so much for, from over the last couple of months becomes God's weapon of judgment against the opportunistic murderer Agag, the one who had been wreaking havoc on Israel and the kings before him. And and he takes care of him. Samuel and Saul did not have a relationship the rest of Samuel's life. And both Samuel and God, it says, are grieved over Saul. So today we see a lot of lessons from leaders. We see that partial obedience is, it, it only reveals a disobedient heart. You and I need to be people who obey God's word. And we need to be people who don't make excuses when we are caught in sin. And we need to be people who get to the place where we realize our sin and repent of it before we are are caught. I think Saul and Samuel give us some great examples of that today. Will you pray with me?